this week on the Backtable Podcast. What's interesting to me is that the change that I'm seeing in the hospitals with the medical professionals that I've been working with, it's coming from the bottom up. It's not so much top-down initiatives of hospital CEOs saying, look, this is what we're going to do. It's the doctors and the nurses and the other healthcare professionals saying, look, we can do better. And I think those healthcare professionals have enormous power because they're trusted by the public. They're trusted by their patients. They are depended upon by the hospital CEOs and the higher ups. And, and I think they're just starting to realize how much power they have on this particular issue. And I'm starting to see as they organize and as they demand that their hospital administrators consider this more and actually do something to reduce their emissions, to make things more sustainable, things are starting to happen, but it's a bottom up thing. Welcome to another episode of the Back Table Podcast. Now here we have a live session in a basin with Professor Eric Ostberg. Hi there. Eric, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. What do you want to know? Let's start with where you grew up, mm. where you went to undergrad, sure. grad school, and what you do now. So I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. I went to Middlebury College and studied geology and then went to the University of Otago in New Zealand for a master's degree and then the University of Maine to study ice cores for my PhD. Love it. And what are you doing now? Now I am a professor of climate science, climatology at uh, Dartmouth College. Fantastic. And... Do you ever interact with physicians? Quite frequently. My wife is a physician, uh, but also professionally. There's been a lot of interest in recent years of physicians trying to reduce the carbon emissions associated with the practice of medicine. And so I've been working with physicians on that. There's a lot of really interesting health impacts of climate change that I have been researching over the years. And I do a lot of community work in the community is really interested in health, right? It's a great way to connect with people. So when we can connect climate change with health, we can really engage a lot of people. And we've talked about in the past on Backtable some examples. For instance, they said in Atlanta, you know, people assume with such a huge airport and airline industry that that must be the biggest contributor to climate change in that region. But in fact, it's healthcare. Mm -hmm. Have you ever looked at that specifically? Uh, not specifically in Atlanta, but I have been working with some folks at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. That's a big hospital in, in Hanover, New Hampshire. And they are looking at those exact statistics, just how much the healthcare industry itself directly contributes CO2 and methane, other carbon emissions that cause global warming. And I can't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but I want to say it was something like 8% of U.S. emissions are directly from the practice of medicine, but I'm not 100% sure of that. Mm -hmm. And we've talked on Backtable examples before. Sometimes people don't realize some of the things we do, for instance, choosing disposable devices as opposed to reusable devices. Sure. Do you find that that relates to other aspects of work that you do? Yeah. So the way I think about climate change is a part of a much larger problem when, in our modern society, which is a lack of sustainability, right? And so... One of the symptoms of that is 
these excess carbon emissions, which cause climate change, but it causes all sorts of other problems like plastic in the ocean, like degradation of our ecosystems, reduction of our tropical rainforests, which also cause climate change, but have other impacts that have nothing to do with climate change, right? So our species is currently not on a sustainable path. Climate change is one of the symptoms, but there are a lot of other problems that are related to that. And, and what you're talking about, you know, going with disposable things instead of reusable is a great example of that. And it sounds like in much of your career, you've been recruited in different ways. For instance, you know, you mentioned ExxonMobil, you know, various other industries that need your help. How have you made those decisions of where to take your path? It's a great question. When I finished my master's degree, I interviewed with ExxonMobil and it's an incredible, incredible industry in many ways in that they are on the cutting edge of earth sciences, right? They've got tools and resources that those of us say in academia, it's, it's really incredible to look at, but I turned that down because it's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to try and enact some sort of positive change at that point in my life. I thought that meant doing policy in DC, trying to do good work where the, the intersection of science and policy occurs. And my life path took me down the academic route instead, but I still am trying to do that sort of work everywhere I can, whether it's with our students or it's with our, our local decision makers instead of, you know, Congress in DC, it's working with local town managers and uh, select boards and people running small businesses who are all trying to take a more sustainable path in whatever way they can. And we've talked, and, and you can be honest about this, you know, our differences in research in terms of what physicians mm. publish and <laughs> what PhDs publish. We've spent both some late nights each publishing our own types of work. Yeah. And oftentimes you look at a lot of the work that we do as physicians. Any thoughts on some of the, <laughs> the work that we do and weaknesses? No, I have no thoughts on that, Dana. No, I, to be honest, it's envy. It really is because when I read medical journal articles, I feel like you guys have figured it out. Like this is the information that actually needs to be conveyed to the reader. And I feel so often like in my academic literature, you're just trying to figure out what exactly the point is of the paper. And for you guys, I don't know, even people like me who have no expertise in medicine can pull up a medical journal article and be like, okay, here's, here's the point. Here's the takeaway. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And I'm envious that, that you have this sort of recipe and I'm sure, I'm sure it's not, if I had to write those papers, I wouldn't feel that way, but from the outside, that's how it appears. Yeah. So even on this recent trip, you and one of your colleagues from a different university were talking about some of the interesting groups that are reaching out to you guys to improve their industries. And, mm. and some of it was military yeah, and in multiple different locations. Why are they interested? Yeah. So the military is really interesting, right? Military is basically an incredibly complex logistical operation and the Navy in particular is really concerned about sea level rise because, you know, where do you put your naval bases? You put them on the coastline and the coastlines are moving fast because sea level rise is going up with climate change. So that's a concern. We do a lot of work in Hanover at Dartmouth with a group of army engineers called the Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory. It's a, it's a military research facility and they've been studying you know, climate change in the Arctic for decades because there are concerns that 
a future conflict with a superpower might include the Arctic as a key front and things in the Arctic are changing really, really fast. And, you know, there are really interesting intersections between like how the sea ice is breaking up and we're interested in that from a climate perspective. And they're interested in that because they need to know how sick the sea ice needs to be or how thin it needs to be before the submarines can come up through it. Right. So really interesting stuff. The military has incredible resources. They're interested in climate change. They see it as a threat multiplier. They see it as if you have an existing conflict, climate change can make that conflict more difficult. They're also seeing opportunities, right? This renewable energy revolution that has happened over the last decade where we have seen the price of solar panels and photovoltaic energy drop. It's down 90% from a decade ago, where now it's cheaper to produce solar power than it is to produce electricity at the grid scale with something like natural gas. So they see opportunities there to use renewable energy to make their forces more self-sufficient, not reliant on supply chains. So there's a lot of cool opportunities there, but you know, climate change is touching on pretty much every industry you can imagine. I get people reaching out to me from the finance industry. They're wondering what is going to happen in the next you know, 20 years as new regulations come down the pike. How are companies going to respond to that? How's the SEC going to respond to that? New policies that are coming out about how companies have to monitor, measure, and report their carbon emissions for the first time ever. So there's been a, a sea change in the way that all of society has been approaching climate change. I would say just really in the last five years, we've seen this acceleration. And to people like me who have been worried about this or, or you know, focused on this issue for a long time, it's pretty exciting to see how quickly things are moving forward, I think. And sometimes people are surprised about industries you've mentioned, for example, military, finance, which generally are considered quite conservative, that they are believers and also investing in both the science of climatology as well as what they should be doing over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Any thoughts on that? I don't necessarily think it means that they're believers. I don't see it that way. I don't see it as, you know, suddenly military leaders and, you know, the CEOs of major financial institutions are suddenly swayed that climate change is this huge deal. I see that they see opportunities, right? We just talked about military opportunities with the incredible decrease in the cost of renewable energy. From the finance sector, we're talking about multiple trillions of dollars that are going to be invested in this green energy revolution over the next couple of decades. That is an opportunity to make a ton of money. You know, a lot of my students, I think that makes them feel really uneasy, right? To have people maybe making a bunch of money instead of doing something for more altruistic reasons. And I see that, I hear that from my students a lot, right? And I don't see it that way. The way I see it is if we can get on a more sustainable path and people can make a bunch of money by doing that, then it's just that much more likely to actually happen. If we're going to require these multi-billion dollar industries to change out of the goodness of their heart for some altruistic reason, don't hold your breath, right? Good luck to all of us. Good luck. So the only way I see that this is really going to become a, a sustainable path is if major corporations, the oil and gas sector, 
some of these companies that people like to label as sort of bad guys, if they're able to make billions of dollars by doing something more sustainably rather than doing something that's causing, you know, climate change. And then just kind of uh, bringing it back to, you know, our family of physicians, you know, many times people say healthcare is, is so behind the times. For instance, you go to a hospital or even an outpatient clinic, can't find a recycling bin anywhere. You know, we find that people are putting all types of materials in biohazard waste, which yeah. doesn't belong there, but then gets incinerated multiple times. Any thoughts on what it will take to get the healthcare industry to catch up? I think part of the issue with the healthcare industry is that you guys are dealing with really pressing immediate problems, right? But one of the intrinsic problems with climate change is that it always feels like it's a future problem. It's not right now. And there's a lot of great research on like human psychology about that and, and how that can be difficult to create action. You guys have patients right now who need help right now, and that's real and that's urgent and that's essential. So it's very easy, I think, to, in that environment, prioritize the patient and, and making sure that the patient is as healthy as possible and getting the best treatment and any sort of climate impact or sustainability concerns are secondary or tertiary or beyond. So that makes you know good sense to me. What will it take to change that? I'm already seeing a change. What's interesting to me is that the change that I'm seeing with the medical professionals that I've been working with, it's coming from the bottom up. It's not so much top-down initiatives of hospital CEOs saying, look, this is what we're going to do. It's the doctors and the nurses and the other healthcare professionals saying, look, we can do better. And I think those healthcare professionals have enormous power because they're trusted by the public. They're trusted by their patients. They are depended upon by the hospital CEOs and the higher ups. And, and I think they're just starting to realize how much power they have on this particular issue. And I'm starting to see as they organize and as they demand that their hospital administrators consider this more and, and actually do something to reduce their emissions, to make things more sustainable, things are starting to happen, but it's a bottom up thing. And so I guess that's what I might encourage people to do is if this is something that they're concerned about and they're in healthcare, start talking to other people and start creating groups, start asking questions, start asking for carbon audits, carbon footprints. There's tons of firms that can do that for you for not a ton of money. Start getting some numbers and then start like seeing where the low hanging fruit are, you know, get to work. And I think we'll have to do some follow-up episodes, but just to close it out for this session, anything that you personally now as a tenured professor have an interest in your career or anything that you would like to accomplish? So my career, it's interesting. My research as a PhD student and, and what I got hired to do by Dartmouth College was to really study what was happening with climate change? What is the situation? How quickly is it happening? Why is it happening? And in the last few years, again, my research has really shifted to, I don't think we need any pressure <laughs> that climate change is happening. We understand it. We get it. Now it's all about how do we fix it? And that requires interacting with people. And I'm, you know, I'm an earth scientist. We, we don't get trained to interact with people. So I'm finding myself working with Lots and lots of social scientists, people who work with people as their profession and have amazing expertise there. And what I'm really enjoying is 
working directly with the people who are most impacted by climate change. And one of the things that we know on any scale, you look at the problem, whether it's an individual, a city, country, the people who are most affected by this are the ones who have least to do with causing the problem. And that's a really powerful take-home message that I try and keep front and center in my mind all the time. And that's what I'm trying to do now is how do we reduce the impacts on the most vulnerable people and choose a sustainable path. And that requires working with people, not just good flying up to the Arctic, drilling another ice core and saying, yeah, 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 things are changing quick. I think we know that by now. It's how do we fix it? Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable MSK on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and show notes written by Marvi Espiritu and Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jun Roy Thanks again and see you next time.